It is hot out there. How hot is it? It's so hot, the catfish are already fried when you catch them. It is so hot, I saw a funeral procession pull through a Dairy Queen. It is so hot, I saw two fire hydrants fighting over a dog. Man, I'm not even a dad and I have these Oh, jokes. that's terrible. Just terrible. Well, Scott, so was the heat. And with wildfire season already underway, we'll take a look at whether the state has made good on its promises of preparedness and prevention. Plus, a look back at whether a law meant to curb police shootings has had any real-world effects. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Scott Rod in Sacramento. I'm Nigel Duara in Los Angeles. So, Scott, we are adding 3,500 megawatts to the grid, and the governor is asking us to conserve power. How are you going to cut down on your power usage? You know, I'm just going to hit the whole circuit breaker. Just go dark. <laughs> what about you? What are you going to do, Nigel? I'm going to go take a dip in the L.A. River. It's down to a little trickle now, so I can roll around in there. It sounds great. Speaking of power, the folks in power here in the capital city will be discussing the budget. In the coming days, the legislature is expected to introduce and pass in the next week or so their version of the budget. It'll go into negotiations and it will take effect eventually. Nigel, isn't that nuts? You know what else is nuts? 42,000 pounds of pistachios got stolen from a truck in Tulare County. You're lying. No way. No, no, no. No, 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 no. So they, they went and they found it. They found it in L.A. abandoned. Scott... What was the last thing you stole? Your heart, Nigel. Your heart. What I want to know is how much pistachio ice cream would 42,000 pounds of pistachios make? Well, maybe, I don't, maybe that's the next thing is they got to go get the milk. The milk is the next part of the heist. Well, Nigel, perhaps you remember this episode in the saga of Governor Gavin Newsom. On his first day in office, surrounded by firefighters and other emergency response folks, he talked about tackling wildfires head on. Uh, We staff up, we staff down, uh, and now we're reacting to these old mores, and that fundamentally has to change. Ah, yes, the good old days of 2019 when wildfires and climate change are the worst possible thing we can think of because there was no COVID pandemic yet. Global pandemic or not, these issues didn't go away. Nope, they sure did not. So, Scott, how has the governor done on these promises? You just spent a bunch of time looking into this data. What did you find? In a nutshell, Newsom dramatically overstated how much work was done on these priority projects that he set out that were intended to prevent fire in some of the most vulnerable places in California. And then in 2020, some broader context, Cal Fire actually completed only half the fuel reduction work that it did in 2019. And again, that, that work is essential for preventing wildfires. Well, it's a good thing the fires aren't getting bigger and hotter every single year, I guess. Oh, nope, your story says actually that they are. So, but can you walk me through what fire prevention actually is? Like, what does it look like? What What are they doing out there? Sure, I'm not going to go back to the start of time, but I'm going to go back <laughs> to the start of the 20th century. So the way that wildfire fighting has evolved over the years is it started out by just a full-on suppression effort. Fire equals bad. And the response was, let's put these fires out. Let's knock them out as soon as they start. And for a while, that actually worked pretty well. Um, But over time, it also meant that these fuels had built up in the forest. These what are called ladder fuels. Basically think like dry grass, you know, these sort of uh, the vegetation that would help fire climb to much bigger trees. That all built up over time as fire, which is a natural phenomenon, wasn't happening. So the evolution that took place is suddenly 
firefighters realized, wait, we need to actually use fire to our advantage. We, we need to start using fuel reduction to our advantage. We need to start clearing some of this out, whether it's through chopping up branches and, and cutting down small vegetation or by doing prescribed burns. And so that's where we're at now is as we're seeing these fires get bigger and bigger year after year, we're reckoning with the fact that we have to get in there and start to do this thinning work, this reduction work that is built up over time. And like our previous president said, we have to sweep the forest floor, right? That's a big one. Got to get the broom out and sweep it. Break out those brooms, baby. <laughs> so Newsom's made some big promises on wildfire prevention. Again, this was like his first day in office that he started talking about this. And he started talking about these priority projects. But when you went in and did the investigative work, you discovered something different. Absolutely. To set this up, Newsom loves talking about these 35 projects. If there's a press conference on fires, you're pretty much guaranteed to hear about them. Here's just a sampling of some of the things that he's talked about. One of the first actions I took as governor, uh, quite literally the first week uh, after I was sworn in as governor, was an emergency uh, authorization to allow us to fast track 35 high profile fuels management projects here in the state of California. Uh, the purpose was to expedite into the future. 35 high profile vegetation projects were completed earlier this year. We have expedited our environmental review to do the same. We have an historic partnership. His work on those 35 high priority vegetation management projects that we identified that impact 200 vulnerable communities in the state of California. Their team delivered on all 35. They got those projects done. So those 35 priority projects, when Newsom declared that they had been completed back in early 2020, he said that they treated 90,000 acres, which would be a pretty significant jump for the acres that CAL FIRE was doing work on. And again, when I say treated, that means cutting branches, thinning forests, doing prescribed burns. In reality, what we found in our reporting is that less than 12,000 acres had this work done on it. Obviously a significant difference. Yeah, so we heard Newsom say in very stentorian tone that we're gonna have these 35 projects, very concrete, definite numbers of things that are going to happen. So if they did, whatever work they did, why is it important for whatever they did do? So look, again, what this comes down to, why we care about this stuff is there are people's lives, people's homes, people's businesses at stake. And these, these projects were supposed to protect some of the most vulnerable parts of the state, 200 communities that were identified that were seriously threatened by wildfires. You know, we don't want another paradise. Think about when Newsom was making these announcements. It's coming just on the heels of paradise burning, 85 people losing their lives. In addition to that, Cal Fire and the state, they have very ambitious goals that they're trying to hit in terms of acres that they're treating, doing fuel reduction work on. And so the challenge is you can't really hit those goals if you don't know what you're doing and if the data isn't accurate. And again, it comes back to people. I shared these findings with some wildfire survivors, including Mitch McKenzie. He lives in Sonoma County. He lost his home in the Tubbs Fire and also his wine business was severely damaged by the 2020 glass fire. This was his reaction to our findings. When a politician can make a statement that he's treated 100% of a certain area that he lays out, and then the truth comes out that he's only treated 10% of it. I think that with the kind of fires and fire danger that we're in in this area, that's quite shocking. 
I imagine being a wildfire survivor, I would find that shocking. But 2020 was a crazy fire year. We had a pandemic. Who could actually have foreseen all of that? Nigel, I'm glad that you brought that up because our reporting found that there was actually a huge drop in prevention work done in 2020. When Newsom first came into office, prevention work actually increased. But last year, it dropped by about half. A significant drop, as you could tell. So Cal Fire Chief Tom Porter acknowledged that the agency is falling short on its goals. It's not something that I'm comfortable with. It is something that, that I am working to reconcile and to um, uh, correct for the future. But we had an exceptional fire year. Everybody knows that. The same people that are doing that work uh, on those fires, you know, their day job is to do fuels work and plan for fuels work. And that was not a possibility. And then with the, uh, the COVID um, restrictions that we were having to keep our workforce healthy, we had a continued lull. And then this spring, we are seeing uh, well above our five-year average um, fire activity that started in January and has continued to today. So the environment to do this kind of work uh, has been very challenging. Fire experts I spoke to said those reasons are legit. Look, last year was really tough, but it also shows that there's a fragility to the fire prevention infrastructure here in California. You know, fires don't stop just because there's a pandemic. Fires don't stop because there are other emergencies happening. And also, year after year, we're seeing fires increase. And so if that's preventing us from doing the prevention work, that's a problem that would be hard to stop. It'd be a tough cycle to break. Scott, since we've been talking about this, one question has stuck out to me, and that is, are we more vulnerable to wildfires now, today, than we would have been if these projects had gone through? Do we know that? So it's tough to draw a direct connection from this, this prevention project did or didn't get done, and therefore it did or did not save a community. Cal Fire has said that the work that was done on some of those projects did show some promising results, but it's hard to draw a direct connection. At the end of the day, though, the less prevention work that is done, every single acre of prevention work that is avoided or neglected leaves communities more vulnerable. Right. We're not saying causation, but we're saying it does correlate to more safety when you put more data points on the board. That makes sense. So we've all heard from Newsom the last few months about the historic amounts of money he wants to throw at this problem. But how does that actually square with what you're finding just in terms of the spending? Well, last year, Newsom cut funding for wildfire prevention by about $150 million compared to 2019. And again, that was amid COVID-19 spending cuts. This year, he wants to spend a lot of money on fires and fire prevention. He's actually proposing about $1.2 billion. And experts say, look, that's a huge increase. That would make a dent in the work that needs to be done. But they say that work has to be sustained. That investment has to be sustained. I spoke with Scott Stevens. He's a fire scientist from UC Berkeley, and he put it in pretty blunt terms. Literally, if you're not going to maintain the funding forward, it's almost as if why even do it in the first place? Maybe that's a little harsh, but if you don't continue this forever, you're basically never gonna get out of this hole. Forever, right? That shows just how far we have to go to get this problem under control. 
And I do want to note that we reached out to Governor Newsom's office multiple times, laid out our findings in detail, requested an interview, but we haven't heard back. So one last thing I do want to know about is how you guys did this story. This is a numbers heavy story. It's something the administration clearly doesn't want to talk about. Cal Fire clearly doesn't want to talk about. What did you guys do to get the story and, and how did you execute it? Well, it started with those 35 projects. I've listened to and tuned in to so many Newsom press conferences that that 35 project thing was just swirling in my brain. And it made me think, well, okay, what's the deal with these projects? I, I sort of know something about them, but what work was actually done? And what's been done since then? So it kind of just came down to asking for a bunch of numbers and data from CAL FIRE. And the more I asked, the more I scratched at it, the more we learned and the more revealing it became that some of the work that was claimed to have been done wasn't done. And that these grand proclamations of doing all this fire prevention work, well, it didn't exactly square up with the numbers in that we still had a long way to go to get even close to trying to get this under control. What we've heard from lawmakers, mostly Republicans, who are calling for more accountability for Newsom's action and track record on wildfire prevention. And, of course, we also heard from the recall crowd. That includes Kevin Falconer, John Cox, and, of course, Caitlyn Jenner. And we heard from the California professional firefighters as well. They came out defending Newsom and his track record on prevention, saying he's done more than anyone else on fire prevention. All right, coming up. It's been a year and a half since a new law took effect that was meant to put more limits on when police can use deadly force. We'll hear a CalMatters investigation of the real-world consequences of that legislation. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and CalMatters. I'm Nigel Duara. And I'm Scott Rod. We're turning now to a follow-up story from CalMatters. Laurel Rosenhall and Veranda Lyons spent several months digging into a law that was supposed to put more limits on when police can use deadly force. And they looked at whether it actually ended up having an impact on police shootings in the Golden State. Laurel and Veranda join us now. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Nigel. Hey, good to be here. So this is a follow-up to a law that took effect on January 1st of 2020. Just for context, for our listeners, that's before George Floyd, that's before the national protests and reaction to his killing. So remind us exactly how and why this law passed and, and, and what it changed. It was prompted by the police killing of Stefan Clark, who was running from the Sacramento police in 2018, ran into his grandparents' backyard and was shot dead by the police. They thought he was holding a gun. In fact, he was holding a phone. And um, his death really prompted an enormous amount of activism at the state capitol and created the political climate that led to this law that changes the standard for when police can be justified in using deadly force. And the law says that they're now allowed in California only when necessary in defense of human life. Previously, an officer could be justified in killing if doing that was deemed reasonable. And so a lot of civil rights activists felt that reasonable was a very kind of squishy and vague standard that failed to hold police to account. Has anyone complained that necessary could be just as squishy as as reasonable? The complicated part, the nuance that you're asking about is that this new law in California 
it still uses what's called the perspective of a reasonable officer. That is what sort of makes it not as black and white as some people might like, because it still is, was the shooting necessary in the mind of a reasonable officer facing the same circumstances and in that moment, would it be reasonable? So one of the really big differences now is that instead of prosecutors analyzing only that moment when the officer decided to use deadly force, they can look at all the things that led up to that moment, including the decisions that the officer made and the conduct of the suspect or the, the person who was who was shot. So that kind of gives a bigger picture of, of analyzing the facts rather than just only that one instant when the officer decided to pull the trigger. Okay, so let's move on to what's happened since this new law took effect. Your reporting includes the stories of two killings by California police officers, one in San Leandro in Alameda County, one in San Diego County. And tell us what happened in those cases. Yeah, so Stephen Taylor was a young man who was struggling with addiction and mental health issues. That's what his grandmother told me when I interviewed her. He went into a Walmart one day last year. Um, his grandma doesn't know why he went in there or, or what, what his plans were, but the prosecutors say that he went in, he, he grabbed a, a tent and a baseball bat. He tried to leave the store without paying for the things. Security um, contacted police and a police officer showed up and Stephen was holding the bat. The police officer tried to um, you know, ask him to drop the bat and the police officer then tased him and he was still holding onto the bat and the police officer then shot him. The DA did actually charge this officer Fletcher with manslaughter saying that you know, his decision to shoot in this case uh, violated this new standard that California has for when police can use deadly force. And she specifically cited the law in her decision to press charges against him. So this this shooting happened a, about a year ago. There was this spring, there was a memorial for Stephen Taylor marking the one year anniversary of his death. And I interviewed his grandmother, Addie Kitchen, just a couple days later. I want people to understand that uh, our children are important to us and that we want justice. We want the officers to be held accountable. So, you know, this new law in a couple of cases is creating that system of accountability that's, that many families are craving. Baranda talked to the family of, of the other case. I did. Um, I talked with uh, Kathleen Bills. Her son, Nicholas Bills, was killed in May of 2020. He had been at a state park, which was closed because of the pandemic with his dog. His dog was off leash. It led to um, an encounter with police. He was eventually um, arrested and taken to the jail. Well, Nicholas had a life. He always, uh, according to his mom, when he was afraid, he would often run. And he figured out a way to get out of the police car. And he was running down the street away from the jail. And a deputy sheriff, Aaron Russell, who was a rookie at the time, shot Nicholas and Nicholas eventually passed away. Now there were four officers on the scene. Um, Aaron was the only one who fired his weapon. And within a few months, uh, he was actually, the officer was charged with second degree murder, which was a big change um, than what we have seen in California previously. 
So in speaking with Kathleen uh, Bills, she said that she'd never get over the death of her son. It was the most devastating thing that happened to me. There is nothing that can prepare a mother for the death of a child. Nothing, nothing. So these are a few examples of what the outcome has been for the new law. We will see what it means when these cases actually go to trial, if it will actually result in police officers uh, going to jail. And it's so immediate when you when you hear that tape of, of these folks talking about it. These are two examples where the law did seem to make a, a difference. But what do we know about whether these cases, are, are they the new normal or are these outliers? All the experts we talked to said it's too soon to make a complete assessment or evaluation of this law. Though a year and a half may seem like a long time to some people in the you know world of making policy changes, having a new law in the books for a year and a half is just not enough time to assess the impact. And also, this was all happening during COVID. You know, this whole thing was being implemented during this once in a century pandemic. And there was a huge rise in violent crime and in homicides during 2020. So that obviously all um, shapes how police are interacting in the communities and could have an impact on how the law is rolling out. That said, the evidence so far suggests that the law just has not been as transformative as supporters hoped it would be when they pushed it through the legislature. You know, this was called the act to save lives. The The entire rationale for this was that it was going to curb the number of deaths by police. And in fact, the number of fatal police shootings in California actually rose from 135 in 2019 to 141 in 2020. Um, that's according to data that the Washington Post tracks. Yes, and another component of the use of force law was this um, training bill that passed, and it was heralded as an opportunity to train officers how to de-escalate uh, situations. And what we learned was that the training is really inconsistent across California. Some agencies uh, enroll their uh, officers in a two-hour state-certified course, and others did their own training, and some you know, just handed people a memo and a 14-minute video to watch. In fact, only 12% of law enforcement officers in California have completed the state-certified training. And that's according to data that we got from the Commission on Peace Officers Standards and Training, also known as POST. One thing to note about the training component of the law is it required POST, that commission, to create the course, but it didn't make it mandatory for officers to take it. Well, let's talk about the folks that have to deal with this in court. Laurel, I believe you spoke with a criminal defense attorney. Yeah, Michael Rains is a Bay Area defense attorney who represents law enforcement officers, and he's in fact representing um, Jason Fletcher, the San Leandro officer who's accused of manslaughter for killing um, Stephen Taylor. He has seen an uptick in police getting charged with crimes or, you know, investigated internally, but he doesn't necessarily think it's because of the new law. He thinks that these prosecutions are really driven by by politics and the, you know, rising influence of the Black Lives Matter movement. So I'm curious whether prosecutors would actually agree with that. You know, is it just that they feel that public pressure in some of these cases, like Stephen Taylor and Nicholas Bills, 
or did the law itself make a difference in their decisions whether to charge the officers? So I spoke with the uh, San Diego County District Attorney, Summer Stephen, who's been in the DA's office for over 20 years. And she said that, you know, it's not politics. She said the new law actually gave them a clear definition of when they can, in fact, charge police officers. The law made different areas much more specific and much more clear as to that taking life using deadly force is something that needs to be avoided at every turn. So it only took, and I think this is really critical to note, it only took two months from the time Nicholas Bills was shot um, and killed for the DA to file charges against um, Officer Russell. So what's the final takeaway at this point? Obviously, this law went to effect right before the global pandemic, and that in effect on everything from crime stats, the ability to train officers, et cetera. What happens now? I think the main takeaway is that for people who are trying to change the criminal justice system, that um, there is no one sweeping solution. Changes happen very in very small increments. Laura Rosenhall, Broad Alliance, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Nigel. Thank you. And Scott, for folks who are curious about whether their own law enforcement departments have received the training we talked about, you can search a database at calmatters.org. And that's California State of Mind for this week. The show is taking a summer break next week, along with a lot of you. So we'll see you after the 4th of July holiday. Thanks for joining us. Stay cool out there. Will do, Nigel. And uh, let me know how that L.A. River treats you. You know, I would go to get some shots and some vaccinations. There's nothing to protect you from what's in that river. So maybe I'll see you in a couple of weeks or maybe not. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Viglund and produced by Jen Picard. Antonio Munez is our engineer. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Mark Jones is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Lagustica by Isaac Joel. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That is all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Thank you.